Section one of Elizabethan Demonology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Davis. Elizabethan Demonology by Thomas Alfred Spalding. Section one. It is impossible to understand and appreciate thoroughly the production of any great literary genius who lived and wrote in times far removed from our own without a certain amount of familiarity not only with the precise shades of meaning possessed by the vocabulary he made use of as distinguished from the sense conveyed by the same words in the present day but also with the customs and ideas political religious and moral that predominated during the period in which his works were produced without such information it will be found impossible in many matters of the first importance to grasp the writer's true intent and much will appear vague and lifeless that was full of point and vigour when it was first conceived or worse still modern opinion upon the subject will be set up as the standard of interpretation ideas will be forced into the writer's sentences that could not by any manner of possibility have had place in his mind and utterly false conclusions as to his meaning will be the result even the man who has had some experience in the study of an early literature occasionally finds some difficulty in preventing the current opinions of his day from obtruding themselves upon his work and warping his judgment to the general reader this must indeed be a frequent and serious stumbling-block this is a special source of danger in the study of the works of dramatic poets whose very art lies in the representation of the current opinions habits and foibles of their times in holding up the mirror to their age it is true that if their works are to live they must deal with subjects of more than mere passing interest but it is also true that many and the greatest of them speak upon questions of eternal interest in the particular light cast upon them in their times and it is quite possible that the truth may be entirely lost from want of power to recognize it under the disguise in which it comes a certain motive for instance that is an overpowering one in a given period subsequently appears grotesque weak or even powerless the consequent action becomes incomprehensible and the actor is contemned and a simile that appeared most appropriate in the ears of the author's contemporaries seems meaningless or ridiculous to later generations an example or two of this possibility of error derived from works produced during the period with which it is the object of these pages to deal will not be out of place here a very striking illustration of the manner in which a word may mislead is afforded by the oft-quoted line assume a virtue if you have it not by most readers the secondary and in the present day almost universal meaning of the word assume pretend that to be which in reality has no existence that is in the particular case ape the chastity you do not in reality possess is understood in this sentence and consequently hamlet and through him shakespeare stand committed to the appalling doctrine that hypocrisy in morals is to be commended and cultivated now such a proposition never for an instant entered shakespeare's head he used the word assume in this case in its primary and justest sense ad sumo take to acquire and the context plainly shows that hamlet meant 
that his mother by self-denial would gradually acquire that virtue in which she was so conspicuously wanting yet for lack of a little knowledge of the history of the word employed the other monstrous gloss has received almost universal and applauding acceptance this is a fair example of the style of error which a reader unacquainted with the history of the changes our language has undergone may fall into ignorance of changes in customs and morals may cause equal or greater error the difference between the older and more modern law and popular opinion relating to promises of marriage and their fulfilment affords a striking illustration of the absurdities that attend upon the interpretation of the ideas of one generation by the practice of another perhaps no greater nonsense has been talked upon any subject than this one especially in relation to shakespeare's own marriage by critics who seem to have thought that a fervent expression of acute moral feeling would replace and render unnecessary patient investigation in illustration of this difference a play of messengers the maid of honour may be advantageously cited as the catastrophe turns upon this question of marriage contracts camiola the heroine having been pre-contracted by oath to bertoldo the king's natural brother and hearing of his subsequent engagement to the duchess of siena determines to quit the world and take the veil but before doing so and without informing any one except her confessor of her intention she contrives a somewhat dramatic scene for the purpose of exposing her false lover she comes into the presence of the king and all the court produces her contract claims bertoldo as her husband and demands justice of the king adjuring him that he shall not swayed or by favour or affection by a false gloss or rested comment alter the true intent and letter of the law now the only remedy that would occur to the mind of the reader of the present day under such circumstances would be an action for breach of promise of marriage and he would probably be aware of the very recent origin of that method of procedure the only reply therefore that he would expect from roberto would be a mild and sympathetic assurance of inability to interfere and he must be somewhat taken aback to find this claim of camiola admitted as indisputable the riddle becomes somewhat further involved when having established her contract she immediately intimates that she has not the slightest intention of observing it herself by declaring her desire to take the veil this can only be explained by the rules current at the time regarding spousals the betrothal or hand-fasting was in messengers time a ceremony that entailed very serious obligations upon the parties to it there were two classes of spousals sponsalio di futuro and sponsalia de presenti a promise of marriage in the future and an actual declaration of present marriage this last form of betrothal was in fact marriage as far as the contracting parties were concerned it could not even though not consummated be dissolved by mutual consent and a subsequent marriage even though celebrated with religious rites was utterly invalid and could be set aside at the suit of the injured person the results entailed by sponsalia de futuro were less serious although no spousals of the same nature could be entered into with a third person during the existence of the contract yet it could be dissolved by mutual consent 
and was dissolved by subsequent sponsalia in presenti or matrimony but such spousals could be converted into valid matrimony by the cohabitation of the parties and this instead of being looked upon as reprehensible seems to have been treated as a laudable action and to be by all means encouraged in addition to this completion of a contract for marriage de futuro confirmed by oath if such a contract were not indeed indissoluble as was thought by some could at any rate be enforced against an unwilling party but there were some reasons that justified the dissolution of sponsalia of either description affinity was one of these and what is to the purpose here in england before the reformation and in those parts of the continent unaffected by it the entrance into a religious order was another here then we have a full explanation of camiola's conduct she is in possession of evidence of a contract of marriage between herself and bertoldo which whether in presenti or in futuro being confirmed by oath she can force upon him and which will invalidate his proposed marriage with the duchess having established her right she takes the only step that can with certainty free both herself and bertoldo from the bond they had created by retiring into a nunnery this explanation renders the action of the play clear and at the same time shows that shakespeare in his conduct with regard to his marriage may have been behaving in the most honourable and praiseworthy manner as the bond with the date of which the date of the birth of his first child is compared is for the purpose of exonerating the ecclesiastics from any liability for performing the ecclesiastical ceremony which was not at all a necessary preliminary to a valid marriage so far as the husband and wife were concerned although it was essential to render issue of the marriage legitimate these are instances of the deceptions that are likely to arise from the two fertile sources that have been specified there can be no doubt that the existence of errors arising from the former source misapprehension in the meaning of words is very generally admitted and effectual remedies have been supplied by modern scholars for those who will make use of them errors arising from the latter source are not so entirely recognized or so securely guarded against but what has just been said surely shows that it is of no use reading a writer of a past age with merely modern conceptions and therefore that if such a man's works are worth study at all they must be read with the help of the light thrown upon them by contemporary history literature laws and morals the student must endeavor to divest himself as far as possible of all ideas that are the result of a development subsequent to the time in which his author lived and to place himself in harmony with the life and the thoughts of the people of that age sit down with them in their homes and learn the sources of their loves their hates their fears and see wherein domestic happiness or lack of it made them strong or weak follow them to the market-place and witness their dealings with their fellows the honesty or baseness of them and trace the cause look into their very hearts if it may be as they kneel at the devotion they feel or simulate and become acquainted with the springs of their dearest aspirations and most secret prayers a hard discipline no doubt but not more hard than salutary salutary in two ways first 
as a test of the student's own earnestness of purpose for in these days of revival of interest in our elder literature it has become much the custom for flippant persons who are covetous of being thought well read by their less enterprising companions to skim over the surface of the pages of the wisest and noblest of our great teachers either not understanding or misunderstanding them i have read chaucer shakespeare milton is the sublimely satirical expression constantly heard from the mouths of those who having read words set down by the men they name have no more capacity for reading the hearts of the men themselves through these words than a blind man has for discerning the color of flowers as a consequence of this flippancy of reading numberless writers whose works have long been consigned to a well-merited oblivion have of late years been disinterred and held up for public admiration chiefly upon the ground that they are ancient and unknown the man who reads for the sake of having done so not for the sake of the knowledge gained by doing so finds as much charm in these petty writers as in the greater and hence their transient and undeserved popularity it would be well then for every earnest student before beginning the study of any one having pretensions to the position of a master and who is not of our own generation to ask himself am i prepared thoroughly to sift out and ascertain the true import of every allusion contained in this volume and if he cannot honestly answer yes let him shut the book assured that he is not impelled to the study of it by a sincere thirst for knowledge but by impertinent curiosity or a shallow desire to obtain undeserved credit for learning the second way in which such a discipline will prove salutary is this it will prevent the student from straying too far afield in his reading the number of classical authors whose works will repay such severe study is extremely limited however much enthusiasm he may throw into his studies he will find that nine-tenths of our older literature yields too small a harvest of instruction to attract any but the pedant to expend so much labor upon them the two great vices of modern reading will be avoided flippancy on the one hand and pedantry on the other the object therefore which i have had in view of the compilation of the following pages is to attempt to throw some additional light upon a condition of thought utterly different from any belief that has firm hold in the present generation that was current and peculiarly prominent during the lifetime of the man who bears overwhelmingly the greatest name either in our own or any other literature it may be said and perhaps with much force that enough and more than enough has been written in the way of shakespeare criticism but is it not better that somewhat too much should be written upon a subject than too little we cannot expect that every one shall see all the greatness of shakespeare's vast and complex mind by one a truth will be grasped that has eluded the vigilance of others and it is better that those who can by no possibility grasp anything at all should have patient hearing rather than that any additional light should be lost the useless lifeless criticism vanishes quietly away into chaos the good remains quietly to be useful and it is in reliance upon the justice and certainty of this law that i aim in bringing before the mind as clearly as may be 
a phase of belief that was continually and powerfully influencing shakespeare during the whole of his life but is now well-nigh forgotten or entirely misunderstood if the endeavor is a useless and unprofitable one let it be forgotten i am content but i hope to be able to show that an investigation of the subject does furnish us with a key which in a manner unlocks the secrets of shakespeare's heart and brings us closer to the real living man to the very soul of him who with hardly any history in the accepted sense of the word has left us in his works a biography of far deeper and more precious meaning if we will but understand it but it may be said that shakespeare of all men is able to speak for himself without aid or comment his works appeal to all young and old in every time every nation it is true he can be understood he is to use again ben jonson's oft-quoted words not of an age but for all time yet he is so thoroughly imbued with the spirit and opinions of his era that without a certain comprehension of the men of the elizabethan period he cannot be understood fully indeed his greatness is to a large extent due to his sympathy with the men around him his power of clearly thinking out the answers to the all-time questions and giving a voice to them that his contemporaries could understand answers that others could not for themselves formulate could perhaps only vaguely and dimly feel after to understand these answers fully the language in which they were delivered must be first thoroughly mastered i intend therefore to attempt to sketch out the leading features of a phase of religious belief that acquired peculiar distinctness and prominence during shakespeare's lifetime more perhaps than it ever did before or has done since the belief in the existence of evil spirits and their influence upon and dealings with mankind the subject will be treated in three sections the first will contain a short statement of the laws that seem to be of universal operation in the creation and maintenance of the belief in a multitudinous band of spirits good and evil and of a few of the conditions upon the elizabethan epoch that may have had a formative and modifying influence upon that belief the second will be devoted to an outline of the chief features of that belief as it existed at the time in question the organization appearance and various functions and powers of the evil spirits with special reference to shakespeare's plays the third and concluding section will embody an attempt to trace the growth of shakespeare's thought upon religious matters through the medium of his allusions to this subject end of section one